In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. So my name is Martina O'Dowd, I'm from Mullingar, I'm here today to visit my 94-year-old aunt, she's like a second mother to me, she's been in the nursing home almost four years and I think we've, in that time we've always been in and out where she's been out visiting us and today is such an emotional day for me, I haven't seen her since before Christmas, Uh, Beryl always would have been out to us for Christmas, this was her first Christmas not to be with my husband and I and our adult children who absolutely adore her. Um, So I'm actually feeling very, very emotional to walk in those front doors today. It's it's surreal. It's almost like as if, is this really happening? Um, We've done window visits. We've been very vigilant with those, but you are looking through a window at the end of the day. There is no personal contact. You're you're having a, a conversation, a verbal conversation, but I'm a great believer in the non-verbal communication and, and all that comes with that. And for, for me today, looking at Beryl sitting in the chair with a smile on her face, looking so happy, it's been fantastic. Fantastic. I'm delighted with Martina coming in to see you and getting in to see me now. Were you expecting the visit today, Beryl, or was it a surprise? She nearly got sick, but I nearly fainted when they told me. She was coming in. You said Mara's coming in, but I thought she the window. I said, no, she's coming in here. Oh, Lord, she nearly... Yeah. I sat down in the chair. <laughs> my name is uh, William McCormick, and uh, this is my mother, Olive, who was 102 weeks ago, and uh, looking well and good form. William, you're in here visiting today. This is the first time you've seen your mother since when? Oh, there, well, there hasn't been any visits now since, um, I think it was November. Long, long time now, we were doing window visits, all right. I would say this day was a... A long time coming. Oh, a long time coming. Now we're very happy to be here. Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever wondered just how spick and span your lovely cosy bed really is? Well, take a listen to this. How big of a problem is dirty bedding? Well, I mean, the thing is, actually, it's not going to hurt you. If you're, you know, anyone who's sleeping there is not going to hurt you. The only thing that could happen is if you have asthma or respiratory problems, what happens is that um, dust mites build up and build up and they breed. They love um, the sort of warm, humid atmosphere of a bed and they will um, multiply in their gazillions. And what happens with dust mites is that the the feces of the dust mite um, trigger can trigger an asthma attack. So that's a very good reason for keeping your bed well, sort of aired. I mean, actually, the funny thing is, um, and also to keep your, your um, linen, you know, regularly washed. But the funny thing is, you know, we've all been brought up to sort of make our beds the minute we get out of bed. Okay, mm-hmm. so actually that's not the thing to do because uh, dust mites love a warm, humid atmosphere and they'll be breeding away inside, you know, under the duvet as you, you know, sort of think, oh, I've done the right thing. So what you need to do is pull back the bed covers, pull back the duvet, open the windows and air the place okay. so that the temperature drops, 
the humidity level lowers and dust mites are starved, basically. Okay. Well, there's an idea mm. now. And that also yes. kind of is a wonderful thing for the lazy among us who don't want to make totally. it at all. Totally. Okay. That's right. Do you think, Aggie, there's a kind of, a, you know, I don't want to generalise, but do you think there's a kind of a male-female split here about how <laughs> often certain people wash their bedding? Well, personal experience, yes. But I know that when I was on How Clean Is Your House, the split is 50-50, quite honestly. But, um, you know, anecdotally, I know I've got two sons. I don't think they'd ever, they don't live with me anymore, but I think that they just go for weeks on end without actually changing their sheets. And um, thank goodness they've got girlfriends. I mean, that's really <laughs> terrible, isn't it? You know, women always fall into that trap of doing that thing. And, um you know, it's such a cliche, but I, yeah, possibly, yes, men are happier to just, you know, put out with the stink and the <laughs> smell and the and the greasy sheets and pillowcases. Oh. So I mm. can I take it from you then that you wouldn't be a big fan of breakfast in bed either. That's right. No, because actually, you know, little crumbs, they really sort of, they feel like massive boulders on your skin, don't they? Mm. And it's just not a nice thing. And also, Pets in bed, haven't got any time for pets in bed. Oh, my goodness oh. me. No, no, no. Snuggly no. dog beside you, cat no. crawling up under no. the duvet, no? No. Can yeah. we talk now about about <laughs> pillows? So more, I, I've read yes. that more than 10% of the weight of a manky pillow will be hundreds of thousands of dust mites. You have an arm check. Tell me what that is. Yes, that's right. So if you um, stick your arm out and place a pillow on the extended arm, if the pillow drops down on either side, you can tell quite easily the weight of the, you know, uh, dust, saliva, skin cells, well, the skin Dust is mainly made up of skin cells anyway. And, um, you know, all those sort of dried out bodily fluids, that is what's weighing down your pillow. Oh, I see. So if it lies flat on your arm, then it's probably yes. in good shape. Yes. Okay. On, in good shape, yes. Dear, I'd yes. say there's people That's all over right. the country doing that right mm. now at the moment and getting an awful <laughs> fright. TV personality and cleaner, Agnes McKenzie from The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. And of course, you can tune in to Sinead every Saturday morning from 9 till 10. Last night on Instagram, our own Dr. Kira Kelly here, of course, from News Talk Breakfast, did a questions and answer session with people on our Instagram about um, drinking at home, in particular during the pandemic. And the reaction to the post was so big we, that we decided to bring Kira on the show here in Lunchtime Live today to chat to us about it. Kira, thanks for, for joining us in the programme. Um, well, why did you decide actually to do this last night? Good afternoon, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Um, I suppose why I, I, I did it was. Um, for many years, obviously, I was a doctor before I was ever a broadcaster. Mm. And a lot of people still to this day send me messages about their health or about their worries. And I, I, I answer some of them. I don't answer all of them because I can't. There's just often too many. But I had seen a real theme over the last number of weeks um, in that I was getting uh, a lot of messages by people telling me they were worried about their drinking, uh, uh, mostly from women. But that's probably largely to do with Instagram. Most of my followers are women rather okay. than, than it being a, a predominantly just women-based issue. But but a lot of messages. And people didn't just say, what struck a chord with me is people didn't just say that they were worried about their drinking. Quite a number of people used the term that they were scared about how much they were drinking and they felt kind of out of control with it. So I thought about it and I thought, 
you know, maybe I need to talk about this. Maybe I need to, to you know, occasionally I do a Q&A and I try and do, you mm. know, I've done them on COVID and things like that. So I, I put up a, a, um, a little post yesterday with just some pictures of empty wine bottles and I said, listen, sometimes I ask you, do you want me to do a Q&A and, and you'll tell me and if there's feedback, I'll do one. But I said, I realise this might be a hard one for people to say that they want me to do. So I'm just going to do one and if people have questions, pop them into my stories, I'll put up a question box. So I did. Yeah. And... I answered 100 questions because Instagram put you out on a Q&A after 100 questions. But right. there's probably two to 300 questions I didn't get to. Okay. Um, and I spent two and a half hours answering questions about alcohol and people's fears around their drinking and not knowing where to turn to for help and all of their struggles around it. And it struck me that there is a pandemic within the pandemic, Andrea. And we know that people are using more drugs, they're drinking more, they're using porn, they're, they're gambling. We, and we know why, because those things are crutches. They're crutches that people use to cope when they're under significant pressure. And there is no question that people are under real pressure at the moment. And I think last night just kind of tapped into that, okay. to be honest. Well, that answers the question then about demand. But for people that aren't on Instagram, Kira, and like, you know, may, may not have actually watched your, your post, your video last night, can you give us a sense of, like... What was the most sort of common question? You, you mentioned people talking about feeling scared. A of, yeah, a lot of people were asking just about how many units you should drink and can drink. And just in brief, it's 11 for a, a, a woman and 17 for a man. So people were asking very practical things. But the, the, the theme that I heard over and over and over again last night was it starts when the kids go to bed. I have a glass of wine, more yeah, a glass, but it ends up the bottle. And sometimes the second bottle is being opened. And now I am drinking a bottle of wine at night, maybe more. I'm drinking seven nights a week. I feel crap. Uh, I'm low. So it's not a weekend uh, thing? No, it's not a weekend. And there are people obviously who binge at the weekends and they're worrying about that too. But mm. there's an awful lot of people that wine o'clock has become a feature of their life and it's it's happening seven nights a week and they don't recognise where they were a year ago and where they are now and maybe it started all of us in lockdown one we all drank a little bit too much it was kind of a novelty and mm. there was a bit of a fear factor but some people have fallen into that now as their habit and and they're worried you see there there was this thing i suppose kira when when this all kind of kicked off last march you know we were we were at home and we there was we'd no timeline on this for when it would end and you were replacing maybe a, a meal or a takeaway or meeting up with friends or even for people being in the yeah. office with uh, the zoom calls and the quizzes and all of this kind of stuff on a Friday or a Saturday night and with that came you know you might have a drink or a glass of wine or two or three glasses of wine or a cocktail sure. or whatever it was but now we're 12 months well we're, 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 we're more than 12 months nearly on from all of this and it's still going on yeah, and, and I think the Zoom calls have fallen away. So I think people are drinking at home, maybe with a partner, a spouse, maybe with, with flatmates or housemates. But there was a lot of messages last night from people, both men and women, saying, I live alone. I, I don't seem to be able to stop drinking. I drink every night. I, I didn't used to drink every night. I, I, I don't know what to do. And people believe there are no services out there and there are services out there. Um, and there was a huge amount of messages as well, I should say, from people who were concerned about partners, spouses, loved ones, parents in some cases. Okay. Uh, and them saying, what do I do? I need that X is drinking too much, but they don't seem to see that it's a problem. And of course, the truth is most people do know that when they're drinking too much that it's a problem, but they don't admit that to other people or sometimes even to themselves. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. Are there things you can rule out as to what might have caused this? Well, yes. You know, being being a scientist and a physician, I, I tend to look at the physiological factors that may have played a role in this. So we thought, for example, lack of oxygen may cause this experience. 
But we found in studies done both in Europe and in the U.S. that in people who are coming close to death, those who report near-death experiences actually have more oxygen going to their brain than people who don't. And likewise, we thought maybe drugs given to people as they're nearing death would cause these. And we find that the more drugs you're given, the less likely you are to report a near-death experience. So we've slowly ruled out each one of the physiological hypotheses that have been proposed. Of course, there are some that can't be tested. Um, but those we can test, we have, and we found no physiological explanation to account for why people have near-death experiences. And, and there's no commonality, I assume, as to the situation in which people have NDEs, by which I mean it can happen on an operating table or somebody's in a car crash. That's right, exactly. Uh, they can happen in any situation uh, when people fall from great heights, um, when people have accidents, when people have heart attacks, and they seem to be the same experience no matter how you come close to death. Uh, is there also a commonality in how it affects them afterwards? Definitely. And and for me as a psychiatrist, that's been the most interesting part of it, that there's a, a consistent pattern. People become uh, much more spiritual, so to speak. They become more compassionate, more caring, um, much more altruistic in their behavior. And they tend to become less concerned with things of this life, material goods, power, prestige, fame, a competition. And that can cause great uh, problems in their lives if they had lived a life based on competition or based on violence. For example, I've talked to career police officers or military officers who had to leave that career because they just could not tolerate the idea of hurting someone else. Um, you know, Many people come back with a sense that we are all in this together. We're all part of the same thing, which reinforces the golden rule that treat, you should treat other people as you wish to be treated yourself, mm. which is essentially a part of every religion we have. Uh, is there a comparison there, say, between people who might have come close to death or even died uh, momentarily but didn't have an NDE? That might change your your outlook on life anyway. Well, it does in some ways. Uh, uh, people who come close to death tend to have a they, – they value life much more dearly. And if you have had a near-death experience, that makes you uh, freer. When you're no longer afraid of dying, as they say – you're no longer afraid of living either. You're not afraid of taking chances because you know that what comes after is actually good. Mm. So they tend to be more risk-taking. They tend to dive into life and enjoy it much more fully, whereas people who haven't had near-death experiences value life more and become much more cautious, much more conservative because they're afraid of losing their life. Uh, is the effect always positive? Um, well, it usually is in the long run, but immediately when people come back, some of them feel sad about being back in this physical life. And mm. some are very angry about having been brought back. Um, and that anger and sadness and confusion can last for a while. Um, I found that the best solution to that is to have those people talk with other near-death experiencers who have been through this and sort through how they've coped with those feelings. And the people who, obviously they all come back, but did they all report that it wasn't up to them whether they came back or not, that some other force was or, or, or entity was instructing them to do so? That's an interesting question, Sean, because a lot of them say they were given a choice and they chose to come back for a certain purpose, either to, to take care of a uh, older relative or take care of a child. Um, but others say they were sent back against their will and didn't want to come back. And we haven't found any way to predict who was going to be given a choice and who was going to be sent back. Some fascinating insights there from psychiatrist and author Dr. Bruce Grayson from Moncrief. On Thursday, Kieran Cuddihy spoke to David, a victim of domestic violence. Here's a short clip. And can you remember then 
David, when when you did realise or when the penny dropped that hold on, this this isn't normal. This isn't just the normal kind of give and take in any relationship and people having bad days and people having rows. This is something much more serious. Yeah, but again, as I keep pointing out, what do you do about it? What can you do about it? It's trivial as such. In in anybody else's eyes, it's trivial. I don't mind that. It's okay. It's all right. But to you, it's hurtful inside and you just, you don't want to show it. Because you'd be saying, why, why are you being so stupid? Like, it's only a minor thing and whatever. And as I said, a lot of it is acceptable. And as I said, I keep turning around and saying it shouldn't be acceptable. You know, mm. that's, we call it spade a spade as we call it. Was it a huge moment then for you to actually reach out to someone for help? Yes, um, you know, people always ask you, like, did you ever speak to the Gary or did you ever go for services and all that? And you kind of say to yourself, what for? Like, this is only a silly little thing. This is only a stupid thing. She mentioned this or she said that. And why should I be calling in the guards or whatever it is? So I was basically forced into looking for services. I tried mediation there for over a year. And during the mediation, when she said that it was affecting the children, I said, OK, I'm willing to move out. So I approached our local council about looking for a house to rent. And they said, because my name is on the mortgage, I'm not entitled to it. I cannot have two homes. And because you're not entitled to the home, you're not entitled to the rent supplement from the the social welfare. And you go to the homeless shelter, you're not homeless because your name is on the mortgage. So you're falling between a rock and a hard place. And there's there's nobody basically can help you. But yes, if uh, a lady is put out in the, in the night or whatever it is, any time of day, they can go straight into the women's shelter and to Oasis houses or whatever it is. They're given accommodation, they're given warmth, they're given food. And in my case, I was put out at, you say, before midnight. And if you'd done it to a dog, you'd be in court for cruelty. But it's okay to throw a man out of his home at a midnight by guards or whatever. It's, it's obvious, talking to you, David, the... I suppose the difficulty you have yourself, anyone has come to terms with being a victim of emotional and, and verbal abuse. Because like you said, people just write it off as being just that's kind of life, that's par for the course, when obviously it can be so much more than that. How important was it to have gotten support from the Men's Development Network, for example? Uh, it was a great relief to, to a certain extent. And what I'm saying is the fact that there is something and somebody out there willing and able to assist you. I, I use the word assist rather than help. When my, my interpretation of it is when you go for help, you're expecting somebody else to do something for you. But if you give me the information and the ammunition, then I will do something for myself. Because it's bad enough feeling useless and feeling depressed or lonely or whatever it is and you're asking someone else to do something for you and you still can't do it yourself but give me the, the qualifications or the ammunition as I call it to be able to do it myself not just uh, hand it over to a solicitor or hand it over to the men's development I want the men's development to say to assist me and I do all this work myself that I'm not useless and I'm able to cope with this Some shocking vistas there from David from the Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy in case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. This man tells me he was sexually abused as a child and also witnessed someone he was close to being raped. 
He says these experiences, as well as falling out with family members, all contributed to him ending up on the street at such a young age. So I have a lot of trauma going on my head, a lot of flashbacks, a lot of sleepless nights and everything, you know what I mean, trying to get through it. And, and it is very tough, don't get me wrong, it is impossible sometimes. Like I could sit there for three or four days and not sleep. I've gone a week or two without eating food or anything, you know, it's begging every day, where nowhere to wash my clothes, nowhere to have a shower, walking around in the same rags all the time, looking scruffy and dirty. And that was not like me. Like the abuse from when you were younger was definitely, definitely part of it. Definitely part of it. Oh yeah, definitely, one hundred and ten percent, definitely. Yeah. So when you were fifteen, what kind of places were you staying in? Or I was in emergency foster care in people's houses, maybe just for three or four nights, and then I was put into a homeless shelter. So you can understand how important these shelters are for under eighteen. Oh, for definitely, on the definitely. Yeah, it is. It is a big thing. There has to be. There has to be more. I think they need to start making more because there is going to be more young people come out. And you're going to see young people laying in doorways and all that, do you know what I mean? You're going to see 14, 15, 16-year-olds sitting there. From first-hand experience, you can say that the shelters for under 18 definitely do help. Oh, do yeah, because you get a key worker in there, like, and you get an allowance. Like, if you get up in the morning, make your bed, clean your room, do a bit of hoovering, then you get your daily allowance. So it gives young people a sense of yeah, culture and... Yeah, do you know what I mean? A discipline, like, a routine, do you know what I mean? That's what a lot of them are suffering from. They don't have a routine because they wake up in the morning and say, oh, yeah, I'm going out. They end up going out taking tablets, smoking giants, drinking, coming back, and then doing the same thing. Whereas if they were waking up saying, right... Today now I need to hoover my room, um, I need to mop the floors, then I have to go down and do the kitchen, then I have to prepare for the dinner, and that's that day done. Then the next day you need to have another routine. As long as you've got a routine every single day, seven days of the week, you, you'll do all right. Now you're obviously going to have your struggles like everyone else has. That man is from Cork but is using homeless services in Dublin. He understands how important a shelter such as Nightlight at Lefroy House is, having interacted with a similar system as a child himself. The Salvation Army continues to operate six residential services in Dublin, helping single adults, couples and families. The charity told staff at Lefroy House that Tuesday served notice on it to close the support flat service and then having reviewed all operations there, it decided it was not viable to continue the underage nightlight service. This woman worked with the older teenagers there and she explains to me that it was preventing homelessness. I was a social care worker in Lefroy House for eight years. They'd basically come to us from about 17, 17 and a half and we'd teach them independent living. They'd be given their own flat. Basically, it would be tried to stop them from, when they age out, to prevent them from going homeless. So we'd teach them the skills of cooking their dinners, going to college, maybe getting a part-time or full-time job, um, managing money, the basic skills that they wouldn't have had. We'd teach them there and just putting a roof over their head. They'd, you'd teach them how to set up a bank account and things like that and put money aside and... You would have seen the impact it had on these young people? We would have had a lot of young people that would come to us from residential units. It worked because they were given their own space. and They could go out for the night like a normal teenager and know they could come home to have a roof over their head. It was preventing homelessness with them and that was what worked for them. This is what you're saying, preventing homelessness. So yeah. by closing the doors, is it pushing more young people onto the street? Oh, definitely, because no service has been put in place. No other service has been put in place to take over where we left off. More so if young people had drug issues, mental health issues, you were there to help them manage that. If we were an open-door policy upstairs, so if they were in crisis at 4, 5, 6 o'clock in the morning, there was two staff members there to talk to them, talk them through it, and if they need to go to the hospital, there was a staff member to go to the hospital with them. It was providing that emotional to basically get them over a hurdle in life. They kind of, they came to them with 
what was going on with them say well this is happening that's happening or they felt they could speak to you and that's been taken away from them a number of staff were made redundant due to the closure of Dublin's dedicated homeless teenager care centre the Salvation Army says this will allow it to refocus its resources into essential services for adults and families and that the closure of Lefroy House has no impact on other Salvation Army operations in Ireland. But for those who did work with children there over the years and those who are still living on the streets, what do they believe needs to be done and what does the future hold for them? It's, it's an awful lot. think about like just down the road from where we're having this discussion, there's empty flats for young people to live in and the building's boarded up. Like, why? Why is there an empty flat for young people when that building has been donated to charitable causes and it's closed? Just sitting there idle, TVs, everything, the whole lot, and just putting a roof over their head. And even with, like, the aftercare that we'd done when young people had moved on from us, like, we still done a lot of aftercare with young people. Like, they'd come to our door and we'd provide just even emotional support for them. Like, even if they were pregnant or they were in a domestic violent relationship, they'd come to us and they'd cry. And you'd be able to provide that support. Whereas now, like, they ring a phone number and they can't even get through because it's all gone. They've no way of speaking to staff who did build these relationships over the years. And what are you hearing from the Salvation Army or Tusla about the building lying idle? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So what would you like to see being done next? Um, I suppose a little bit of transparency and like, I mean, it obviously is a massive funding issue. So, you know, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's out of our hands at this point, but just, yeah, just a little bit of transparency and like, what is the plan for that building? Like, is it not going to be anything other than a, a derelict building that's doing nothing? You know, it's a shame. Josh Crosby reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. On Tuesday, Shane Coleman spoke to Tommy Charlton about the Finding Jack Charlton documentary and his brother's long battle with dementia. I've spoken to you before about Jack. I, I know you loved uh, your, your your big brother and he was an incredible character. It must have been difficult to watch, even though I know you'd experienced it in the flesh, you'd seen Jack, but it must have been difficult uh, to, to, to watch at times for you. Well, it was it was obvious to me quite a while, you know, for quite a while now, uh, that it wasn't right, that things were deteriorating. And that was very difficult. I really, uh, I suffered watching him deteriorate like that. The last the last time he came here, his, his daughter and his wife brought him the car. He came and sat on the settee, and my two grandsons ran and jumped on his knee. And he had one on each arm. And I've never seen Jack smile like that in my life. He was absolutely in his element. It was the kids really brought it out of him. Yeah. It's, it's a lovely memory uh, to have. I, I think one of the things that people, lo- well, one of the many things people loved about Jack Charlton, apart from the fact that in Ireland, apart from the fact he delivered such success to us here, uh, to our football team, was that just he, he called things as they were. It, it seems to me there's something quite appropriate that um, he's now, even even as he's passed away, he's now helping to raise awareness of an important issue in terms of dementia. Well, I, I was talking to a friend just yesterday and saying that very famous people die and in a fortnight they're forgotten. Well, that doesn't seem to be happening with Jack. Jack was bigger than that. And uh, it, it's it's rewarding to know that he's still remembered so poignantly. Yeah. 
I, I know how proud you were of Jack and how proud you, you are of your brother Bobby as well and we've spoken to you about that um, uh, be, before. Does it make, I must make you proud as well to know that um, even even uh, after his death he is still doing good um, a, a raising raising awareness of, of dementia. Well I've always been very proud of Jack and I always will be. He was my big brother and uh the very fact that dementia is something in my family, I do believe that quite a few of the family have suffered from dementia towards the end of their life. Um, four of my uncles all appeared that way, uh, my mother's brothers, and I'm afraid, I'm afraid I feel it claim, you know, finding me as well. I'm, I'm, I'm not the, the guy I used to be. Uh, I'm very proud of Jack and the way he handled it. He was very, very, he had dignity and uh, he he got through it as best he could. I think he knew that he had this awful thing. Yeah. Just just very finally, Tommy, do, do you have a view on, uh, like a lot of people talking about the number of Jack's teammates, for example, in that England World Cup winning team, who who had dementia and a lot of people wondering about the link with with football and and heading the ball. Um, is it something yet you, you you have a view on yourself? Personally, I have. Have you know anybody who's never headed a very heavy football that's wet on a cool day has never experienced uh, and can't really have an opinion on what went on. Well, I've done that. And I can tell you, it is not a pleasant experience, and it is not normal in any way to hit a ball coming from 30 yards up in the air and head it back the way it came. That is not normal. Tommy Charlton from News Talk Breakfast. On Sunday, off the ball, explored how watching sports makes us happier. Here's Owen Sheehan and Larry Umstead. If we get into the science, because this is a book based on science, it's not just randomized theory thrown out here. How does sport benefit us? Well, this probably the biggest thing at the personal level if would fall under community. Uh, the psychologists have about two dozen different mental health benefits attributed to being a sports fan. Things like lower rates of depression, higher self-esteem, um, larger social circles, and better connectivity to others. But I think most of those all come from this one underlying factor of community which, you know, the sense of belonging to a group, a, a particular group of fans. I don't know if, if you guys use the term over there, but we've taken in, in the States to using whatever the name of the team is, fill in the blank, nation, right? Red mm. Sox nation, Yankees nation, in a way that you don't do for, say, Harry Potter or Star Wars fans, <laughs> right? Um, sports is unique in a lot of ways because of that. And one of... Um, I mean, one of the big things is when you watch a game, pretty much whatever, you know, whether it's your football or our football, uh, you see tens of thousands of people in the, in the stands, a lot of them wearing jerseys or colors or hats. And even though you think you're watching a sporting event, not a, spe- not a bunch of spectators, you can't help but see them. So even when you're home on your couch, you get this feeling that you're part of something bigger than yourself, which, again, you don't get when you watch. I, I love Star Wars, but if I watch it on TV, I don't feel like I'm belonging to anything. And you see people in the supermarket, you know, with um, 
a hat for your you know rugby team or whatever it is uh and there's this shared recognition uh bumper stickers is something in this country people put a lot of sports team bumper stickers on their cars and you drive around and you can't help but you know if you're in new york you're going to see yankees logos so in again in a way that other kinds of fandom don't really have so there's this constant sense of community and that belonging makes us happy why is that why does that sense of belonging make us happy and why is it something that we chase so desperately uh it's it's dna i mean humans are innately tribal creatures and going back you know to the to the stone ages people lived together in groups and up until the industrial revolution extended families typically anywhere in the world lived together under one roof um and people have always banded together to form villages city states towns nations um you know when we get the odd person who actually enjoys living alone in a in a cabin in the woods cut off from society that's when we get what we call the unibomber you know in this country <laughs> uh so most people um it's human nature to crave a sense of tribal belonging and sports provides sports fandom provides that in a way very very few other things do the only you know thing really on a scale globally with it would be religion sport has probably overtaken that in many elements of society at this point it has because you know when when they pull people and they say are you a sports fan if you say yes that pretty much is a guarantee you watch some sports if they ask you if you're religious it's certainly not a guarantee <laughs> you go to church or synagogue or the mosque right it just means you know that you you affiliate and certainly you know sports fans collectively are, are bigger more people that belong to any single organized religion in the world journalist and author larry umstead from off the ball in case you missed it with susan cahill a look back at the week on News Talk. Uh, Henry, you've been speaking to Leaving Cert students themselves then about you know being second class mm. robots. What do they think of all of this? It's a harsh phrase. I and mean, when we were younger, perhaps we were all second class robots. I was probably maybe a third or fourth class <laughs> robot. Um, <laughs> um, I got to meet these Leaving Cert students two metres apart. They're back in the classroom. I met them outside Trinity Comprehensive Ballymon. Do you get to use your own brain or do you just have to learn it all? Nah, you just have to learn it. Just have to learn it. And would you like to change that? Yes, I would. And what would you have instead? Monthly assessments. Like, learn what the student's actually good at instead of them having to learn everything. Can you put your hand up in school and say, Miss, Miss, Sir, Sir, Miss, I think this. Can you give your view or do you have to stick to what's written there? You just have to stick to what's written there, yeah. Do you feel like a second-class robot? Do you feel like you have to just learn it all off? Yeah, because a lot of the leaving cert does seem to just be learning notes off and reciting stuff from knowledge that isn't benefiting you because there are certain more things that could be used practically or even taught more practically that instead we're just reading off a page and forgetting as soon as we walk out to class when there's better ways to teach them. If you were in charge of the future of schooling, of the future of how kids learn in school, what would you change? I would just introduce more practical aspects to it and make it so that it's clear that the stuff being taught is useful and that the applications of them are being shown to children because a lot of people are just being told things to learn off or told things to know and have no idea where or how to use them. And how is it to be back to school? Well, it's good for the social aspect. Like, seeing me friends is good, but, of course, it's still skill as it is, but 
happier not being at home because the online learning was just just wasn't the best like the mentally or even just in the actual learning part because again it was just reading off notes off a screen instead of even a board and just being told that you have to learn these at home and no help how would you change school forever I'd probably include more practical subjects instead of having more where you have to do exams 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 study this specific subject just for this exam and I'd probably include more work experience because only work experience in fourth year where I think I learned a lot and I really got to think outside the box when I was in fourth year doing my work experience. If you were in charge of the future of Irish schooling, what would you do? What would you change? The leave inserts, to be honest. You would totally change it? Totally change it. Probably make it a little bit more practical. Would include more subjects. Either get rid of the points or make it easier to get. Yeah, leaving their students there explaining how they would change the systems and how they learn. When you read these comments on the front page of the paper today, Henry, I mean, particularly when it came yeah. to rote learning and, and, and repetition, did it ring a bell for you? It did, it did. I remember my maths exam the night before. There was just pages and pages of notes and I was trying to learn it through the night. I was a crammer. I was terrible at And how did you do? How did you do learning. that? Oh, oh I, I just, which, which exam? That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> the politician's uh, well, answer. Not, not, Go on, I won't embarrass not, you. Not great, not great. But, you know, and, and, I, and I tried very, very hard when it came to, to grinds, when it came to, you know, trying to get my head around it. And this is the interesting thing about, the, the as you said, the root learning over and over and over again and trying to get the, the kids and the young people to think. And if they start thinking, they'll be able to perhaps work it out. I met these people, including a primary school teacher, Teacher and asked about their school days. My name is Anne Marie Reynolds and I'm teaching in Holy Spirit Girls National School. Personally, I loved I loved school when I was younger and I continued on. I think it's more bringing uh, more fun elements and more active learning. I think even through lockdown, that was a big thing. What teachers wanted to do is take it really was taken away from book learning and writing in the books and doing more practical things. And I think because of lockdown, that actually has come about. And I think a lot of teachers have started to see that themselves. So I definitely think more activities, getting children up into their environments, working like that. So you think rote learning could be a thing of the past? Slightly, yeah. I definitely do think that. And I think with how lockdown went and how teachers went about uh, giving out work and everything, it, was, it, was, it wasn't from books. It wasn't. It was using their environments and things like that, yeah. There is obviously some benefits of how, and it worked for years, how the rote learning, learning from the book. So I definitely do think that needs to be an element of it and it shouldn't be just abolished. But I think there needs to be more practical learning, more inquiry learning getting children to use their head practically think that's you'd see even in maths a lot of problem solving that's where children are fall down and if you've looked at Ireland even in comparison to other countries that is where we're making the mistakes children know how to do the sums it's, it's taught but they don't know how to apply what they know into problem solving in real life when we were going to school we were taught multiplication we were taught um, reading everything but most of the kids can't even read and write when they come out of school I don't know why it's not that they're not as good, but they're more um, tech savvy. They're more. Um, it's all to do with computers and everything now. But we, when we were learned, we were learned how to read and write, how to do paragraphs, how to do everything. When you ask a child to, or a person to write a letter now, they don't know how to. They don't have to, don't even know how to write their address properly. Henry McKean reporting for the Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. I know you're in Boston now, but we can hear from your accent, you're, you're Irish born. Do you see the Irish as a, as a tactile race? That's a, it's an interesting one. Um, I think 
you know, it's hard to say which which races or cultures are more are more tactile than others. I mean, my grandfather was a doctor in Roscarbury and, uh, he, he, you know, a GP, and he was called a French doctor because he was always shaking hands with his patients and with anybody he met in the street. And he saw, you know, touching a tactile presence with patients, the old bedside manner in a way, where you sit down and you take somebody's hand is absolutely central to healing. And this is something we recognize again, you know, with with the tragedies of people dying without being touched or or without being able to touch those they love because of the pandemic in, in hospitals and caretakers and doctors bear witness to this. But the very fact that he was called a French doctor in Rascabri at the turn of the of the last century may indicate that, you know, people at the time in Ireland weren't hugging and, and shaking hands and so on as the French and the Italians and the Spanish and maybe, you know, the more Mediterranean cultures and races might do. Um, but then again, if you look back to, you know, our, our, our old Gaelic culture, the Breton laws and, you know, the, the, the Book of Kells and the Midnight Court, that's a very tactile culture. It's a very embodied culture. So maybe somewhere along the line, and I don't want to blame the English for everything because there were lots of other invasions too, um, you know, Vikings and Anglo-Normans and whatnot, Danes. But um, uh, somewhere along the line, maybe, and this is, I don't discuss this in the book, maybe we sort of lost touch with ourselves and with 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 the famine and, you know, the tragedy of that, uh, you know, starvation. Um, maybe touch hunger as well as food hunger became part of our part of our being. And if you look at, say, Irish dancing, the feet are going mad, right? Uh, as we're jumping up and down, but the arms very often are, are, are you know, almost stable and stayed uh, as we, as we, you know, uh, clutch them to our sides. So somewhere along the line, I think we did sort of lose touch with with our bodies, and maybe you know, religion had something to do with that too. Whether it's Catholic Jansenist Puritanism, uh, which I think we suffered from hugely in 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 this country uh, since the nineteenth century, or indeed Protestant Puritanism. Uh, there is a sort of a fear of the body. And then very often, even in sexuality, this could come out, as we know, in perverse ways, child abuse and, and whatnot, where kind of a culture of celibacy, clerical celibacy be, was, was the norm. And there was a distrust of of uh, our embodied incarnate tactile existence. So I'd say that, yes, is something that we need to think about as Irish people. Um, but, you know, you, you, coming back to your question as to how the pandemic sort of changes things and then what was it in our culture already that was sort of out of touch with touch i would say that our digital culture for all its huge advances has um has led to a world where even prior to covid-19 we were spending a lot of time uh, on our on our phones our iphones they say americans check them you know a, a billion times a day um gaming and and videos and so on and, and, and even now education um is is online for the most part you know with the pandemic we we went we went digital but we were already digital before that and digital which originally meant our fingerprint uh you know became a code a computer code and we gained a huge amount of that in terms of interconnectivity with people all over the world and even now with covid we can still with zoom and all kinds of digital internet communications, be in touch with people, even probably this telephone call, I'm in Boston, you're in Dublin, is made possible by that. But what's lost in that is a, is a certain proximity of presence with people. 
And that touch hunger is even more acute, it seems to me, and accentuated in our pandemic times. We've gone doubly digital, so to speak. Philosopher Richard Carney from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune in to Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now Cork's greatest export, the wonderful John Spillane. Have a great weekend. Only once upon a silver moon we sailed for seven summers Through many dreamlike islands in the dark blue sea The island of the promises, the island of the women The island of the longing, the island of the strong Once upon a silver moon we sailed Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.